Would you join me now in 1 Corinthians 14 as we, in this Thanksgiving weekend, we re-enter our study through 1 Corinthians and we come to a passage now that's about worship. And of course, Thanksgiving on this Thanksgiving weekend uh, comes to mind as well. It's a huge part of worship. So let's take on this topic of worship together and let's ask this question. What is most important in a worship service? And we could ask the question, is it the music? Is it the sermon? Is it our giving? Is it baptisms like we had last Sunday at 930? Is, is that most important? We say all those things are, are important, but most important is this. Most important is God's presence and his pleasure with our worship. Most important is God is here. And the question is, is he pleased? Now we're tempted to get that backwards oftentimes, right? We can evaluate a worship service by how did I feel during that worship service? Were my preferences met for how I thought that should be? We can make that dominant if we're not careful rather than the question being, God, were you pleased? In fact, here are the types of questions I hope you and I are asking at the end of this worship experience today. I hope you'll leave here asking this, God, did you like that? God, did we honor you appropriately in worship? Here's a question to ask the Lord. Was, was our worship of you, was it true? Was it sincere? Was, was our worship of you, God, coming from fully surrendered hearts? God, were you pleased with us? And maybe you can make it even more personal. God, were you pleased with my worship of you? When we think about these Corinthians and how they worshiped, it had devolved into chaos in the Corinthian church. The believers were divided in various ways, as we've seen. Many had become self-exalting and self-absorbed rather than Christ-exalting in worship. The women were disregarding their husbands. We saw that back in chapter 11. The wealthy were dishonoring the poorer members of the church. Those with the gift of tongues, many of them were just babbling in the worship service. Nobody was understanding them. There was no interpreter. And the people were just speaking out in worship. They were interrupting each other. They were talking over top of each other in worship. So if we think about the Corinthian worship services, we could say this, they certainly were not boring, right? If we could have sat in on one of those things, man, I don't know what's going to happen next. This is chaos. Nobody is sleeping. So we'd say not boring, but we'd also come away saying, but neither was it beneficial. Neither did that bless me in any way. And so Paul here is writing to correct their disordered worship. And we're going to listen carefully ourselves to learn what type of worship is it that pleases God, the one who matters most. And the first thing we're going to see from our text is this. Worship should be edifying. Worship should be edifying. That takes us to verse 26. What then, brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation, let all things be done for building up. Seven times in this chapter, Paul uses these words, upbuilding or building up. Some translations say edification there, same idea. We see this word in verses 3, 4, 5, 12, 17, and here in verse 26. So see this, worship that pleases God is worship that also benefits us. That says something about the character of God. He deserves our worship. All of our minds are on him, but he wants the way we worship also to benefit and to bless us. So we are exalting God together while also seeking to edify each other at the same time. 
We are lifting up His name, but we're wanting to build up each other. We're delighting ourselves in God while seeking to strengthen each other in faith. So let's not mistake worship as being merely an, an individual pursuit. Now certainly, coming off of Thanksgiving week, I hope you are worshiping the Lord every day. And I hope that's your practice every day, to get alone with God every day, to open up your Bible, hear from God, respond to Him in prayer, respond to Him in obedience. I hope you worship like that every day. I hope even in your family, you have moments of family worship along the way as well. But don't think that worship is primarily and only individual. So yes, you're going to be worshiping him privately, but also God's called you into a life of worship that involves the body of believers. And so we are to come together like this in a family gathering, the children of God, to give him worship. So on the one hand, when we come together, we're, we're worshiping him, but we're thinking about each other. And we certainly don't want to do anything that would distract other people from Christ. But also in these moments, we want to be very intentional. Oh, but I do want to act in the body in a way that encourages other people's faith. I want to be a part of building them up. Now, last week in worship, I had a different vantage point. So I was in the eight o'clock service as Derek preached that fine message on discipleship. In fact, if you missed that message, it's online and you can hear that good message on disciple making. And so I was in there for that service. And then at the 930 service, I was a part of two baptisms. And then I went out a back door and I headed down to Chesterfield to Coastal Church where my son-in-law's on staff and my daughter's there. And it was the baby dedication for my youngest grandson. And it was really sweet to be there for that. And my friend, Gene Cornett, was the preacher that day. He's the lead pastor down there. And he preached from Psalm 119. And so I sat where you sit that Sunday. I sat there and listened to a sermon. And can I tell you, I'm impressed with you all who sit and listen to sermons every week. It's not as easy as you make it look. Here's my point. There's a lot of distraction going on in the pews. And, uh, and so I know sometimes there are things that might distract me as a pastor. I try to keep focused and keep moving, you know, no matter what happens out there. Normally, I'm not very distracted at all. But, but sitting in the pews, there's a lot happening in the pews. And it's just been a while since I've sat there. And, uh, and some of the noise was coming from my own grandkids, you know. So, uh, because even when they're being good, you hear that sound of pencils and crayons on paper. And you're just like, wow, that's, it's a quiet room. And I'm hearing that. Sometimes you hear that rustling of candy wrappers. You ever heard that? I remember that back in church with my mother years ago. I remember thinking, would you just go and open that thing? But that 20 minutes of quietly crinkling, not so quietly that paper. I remember that in, in the service last week, this dear lady, her, her brush, her hairbrush fell out of her purse and it rolled two rows up during the service. So just a lot's happening. And so, and of course, people, people, we're human beings. And so sometimes people have to go to the restroom. In fact, mentioning this, I don't want to stress anybody out like, oh no, I've got to go now. It's, listen, so here's the point. We don't want to intentionally, thoughtlessly distract other people, but we're people. And so they're in the pews. You have to give each other a lot of grace. Aren't we glad children are in here at times and, and trying to be quiet and parents are trying to whisper to them and you might be hearing that. It's okay, listen, give grace. Aren't you glad you're not worshiping alone this morning here? You've got brothers and sisters here and we make noises and sometimes you do have to get up and go and those things happen. But when those things happen, we do want to, well, let me get back on target. That's what I had to do last Sunday. All right, let, let me zone in. Let me zone back in on the message here. So we're just talking about worship that pleases God. It, it edifies. We, we are thoughtful of each other, even as we're a part of a worship service. Notice also in our text here that, that first century Corinthian worship was very participatory. 
In other words, everybody had a part in it. So they weren't in large rooms like this because they didn't have church buildings there in the first century. So likely in Corinth, there were a number of house churches that would meet and maybe people, uh, maybe about 10 to 20 people gathered for worship. And, and Paul describes it this way, that somebody might have a song, another person might bring a word and a number of people might have a word to share, but everybody's worshiping and everybody's being very discerning in that environment as well. But the major goal is God being exalted and the believers being edified, not self-exaltation as the Corinthians were prone to do. So let me just ask this question by way of application. Is this a, con a concern of yours when you arrive for worship? When you're coming, I hope your mind is, I am going to worship my Lord and Savior today. I hope that's on your mind. But I hope you have an accompanying thought. As I come among God's people, I want to be an encourager to them. I, it does matter to me that they are edified, not just me. In fact, I'm gonna, I want to really prioritize God being exalted and my brothers and sisters being edified even more than myself. That would be the mindset that you and I want to bring, whether or not you're ever on the platform, just your part in the body. Remember, we, we just recently were in 1 Corinthians 13. And that idea of it's not just us and whatever spiritual gifts we have, we must be loving. Our love for God and our love for our brothers and sisters must drive our service to the Lord. And that's still in Paul's mind here. And it should be in ours as we are here in chapter 14. So we draw near to God to worship him together simultaneously. Oh, I want to build up the faith of other people. And by the way, that's not just in the worship service here where we're building each other up. We want to build each other up even in the larger life of the body. That means we're going to be serving the Lord and serving each other. And aren't you glad on this Thanksgiving weekend that you can give thanks for so many people that serve you in the church, even in times of worship. So think about what's happening right now in worship. You've got sound guys that are making this happen and they, they hate it when I mention them. They want to be unnoticed, but, uh, but there are people making that happen. We've got guys at the streaming booth back here making this go live now to homes. We have a number of people who can't come to church due to health. We have people who are homesick today and some are traveling and aren't we grateful? So they, they are serving to build up the body to strengthen believers while this is happening. Also, there are an army of people serving in our children's ministry right now down the hall. Some of your children are being loved and pointed to Christ. They're building up your children, allowing you to be built up in here. It's amazing. So we have deacon serving and all kinds of things happening all around here. So we want to thank God for them. But let me just remind you also, you want to join them in that pursuit. Oh, Lord, I want to worship you, but I have to have roles where I'm building up your body at the same time. Can I remind you from 1 Corinthians that your service in the church, your, your work to build up this body will be evaluated by the Lord at the end. In other words, you're going to be judged by how you served in the church. Thank the Lord, your salvation's not on the line in this judgment, but any, any reward, it has a bearing on how you've served in the body of Christ. So where am I getting that from? Well, that's 1 Corinthians 3. It's been months ago we were in 1 Corinthians 3, but by way of reminder, hear these verses again. 1 Corinthians 3, 10 through 17. According, according to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. No one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, 
he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. Remember, chapter 6 speaks of your body being a temple of the Holy Spirit. Chapter 3 speaks of the church family being a temple of the Holy Spirit. We dare not harm the body. We, we dare not do anything to destroy the body. But we are to be concerned rather of building up the body. And even our works at building up the body will be evaluated on the last day. So worship that pleases God. What is it? It's worship that is edifying. Worship also that pleases God is worship that should be ordered. Our worship should be ordered meaning everything should be done sequentially rather than simultaneously. This takes us to verse 27. If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two or at most three and each in turn and let someone interpret. But if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and all be encouraged. And the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. Verse 33, for God is not a God of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. So Paul says that the elements of worship should be carried out one by one rather than all at once. He says each in turn are to carry out things in worship. So in other words, we can say it this way, <clears throat> there is to be an order of worship rather than outbursts of worship. And maybe you've known some Christians like this. There's an erroneous view that the more chaotic a worship experience is, then it's more marked by the work of the Holy Spirit. In other words, some people, if they leave their church and it got pretty raucous and it got pretty wild in there, then they would say, oh, the Holy Spirit fell upon us today because it, it, went, it went off in church this morning. So in some churches in their culture, there's a lot of shouting from the pulpit and a lot of shouting from the pews, a lot of running around sometimes uh, in church, jumping pews. So thankfully, I haven't seen that in person, but you can go online. Not right now, but you can go online and see uh, people feel like, man, I just, I just couldn't help myself. The spirit was there. I just had to get up and I had to jump and I had to run. One I saw uh, was a guy who got so excited in the name of the spirit, he jumped up into the choir loft, jumped into the baptistry where thankfully there was water. He didn't hurt himself. And he would have said coming out of that, I, you know, I just, the Holy Spirit just took a hold of me. But that seems, that seems foreign to how they did church in the first century. That's something other than a mark of the Holy Spirit being there. I was in a revival service years ago attending, joined our newly married, and we sat in this revival service. And the, and the man preaching, he was going after it. And uh, he said, he started bragging on another pastor he knew. And he said, brother, so-and-so, he would get so into preaching that while preaching, he could jump off the platform while preaching land flat-footed and keep right on preaching. Now, let's just acknowledge that would be interesting. And, uh, and don't hold your breath. I am not going to try to take off from here. Our worship service would turn into a prayer service as you would lay hands on me. Safe team would be coming in. It'd be a mess. But um, again, different cultures do some things differently. I'm not trying to knock all that, but just trying to make the point that louder does not mean it's always of the Lord. 
Just making the point that bizarre does not mean it's blessed of God. And being sensational doesn't mean it's of the Spirit. But of course, we're not wanting the opposite of that. We're not wanting dull worship. We're not wanting to sit in here and just say things that our heart's not in. Not at all. But, but we're just seeing from the text that order is good because our God is a God of order. What's verse 33 say again? For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. So you and I just celebrated Thanksgiving, and I hope you had a wonderful time gathering with friends or gathering with your family. And part of what made your Thanksgiving feast nice, though you didn't think about it, was that there was order in that meal. There was some sense of order there. Now, in our flesh, we might have thought something like this. Look, I don't want to wait any longer. This turkey's been smelling good all day. All these sides, I'm going in, and I'm not waiting on anybody. That's what you feel like doing. But you've, you've come to know over time, listen, more people are going to enjoy this feast if we just hang on here. Let, let's, let's get organized. Let's all take our seats. Let's have some type of blessing here, however your family does that. And then let's, let's pass this food. And it doesn't matter to me, right or left or counterclockwise, all that. But there, you've got some kind of system there. And maybe you're playing zone defense. Maybe you just eat at your end of the table and you help. Whatever you do, doesn't it enhance the feast that there's some type of order. And that's what we're saying here. We are the family of God. And when we gather, we can say this is a bit like a family meal. And we're gathering here with our Father. We're going to feed on His Word together. We're going to sing these songs to Him. And God is a God of order, not confusion. And so we can have our hearts fully engaged while having this have some sort of order to it. 1 Timothy 3.15, if I delay, that you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. We are God's family. Those of us who have been born again, we want to worship in a, in a way that, that is fitting for him. Maybe watching the news, you've seen when there's disorder in a courtroom. And at least in the movies, that's where the judge will wrap his gavel on the desk and say, order in the court. I don't know if they say those words much anymore. They certainly want, they want things calming down. Sometimes they'll just call the deputies over and to take somebody out. Listen, we, we find that order is a very good thing. So God is alive. He works powerfully within ordered, spirit-filled worship. But on this topic of order here, Paul now brings up the Corinthian women in the church and a very interesting passage indeed. Now verse 34. The women should keep silent in the churches for they are not permitted to speak but should be in submission, as the law also says, if there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. And now I have everybody's attention. Right? <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and you're nervous for me. And uh, I had the same experience at 8 o'clock, 9.30 now with you all. Uh, but so, so what's going on here? That sounds so strange to our ears to, to read something like that. So remember in Corinth, they had a particular problem with the women removing their customary head coverings. We don't, we don't have anything like that, but there was order that God had, had designed for men and women. In, in first century Corinth, they had a head covering that signified their marital status, their submission to their husbands and all that. So they were already being disruptive in this male-female dynamic in the church. So, so again, what's Paul saying here? Here he's reaffirming God's design in, in the order of creation. 
that we see here now called out for how the church ought to operate, but also other passages will tell us that there is a gender difference between male and female that shows up in how we order our families at home. So very simply, as we apply this, what does this mean for us? It certainly means this, that God does not intend for women to preach in churches. And it certainly means that women are not intended by God to pastor his churches. But obviously, women are vital and active throughout the church in so many ways. But in the worship context, women are not to be the preachers, and they are not to pastor. Now again, 1 Corinthians 11, we saw that women are active, and they are praying, and they're prophesying in the life of the church here. And, and we see that they had, but they were to keep that symbol of authority on their heads. But certainly in the public worship gatherings of the church, Men are to be the ones tasked with the preaching responsibility. We see this not just to the Corinthians, but Paul also was inspired by God to write this to Timothy in 1 Timothy 2, 8 through 14. Listen to this. Same idea. Paul wrote, I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise, also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Let a woman learn quietly in all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Again, the instruction here seems to be focused on the gathered church in worship. Specifically, that women are not to be in spiritual authority over men in the church, nor are they to be the lead teachers in worship. So let's just pause here a moment. Again, very countercultural what we're reading here. But let's just remind ourselves that gender does matter to God. That, that shouldn't seem shocking to us, but we, we know the times in which we live. There's much confusion in the culture out there, but God is our maker. He's our designer. And when he made male and female, he knew what he was doing. This is a clear intentional design of God. And it also shows up in how he wants churches ordered and how the family is ordered. And so these things are important for us to, to know that God made male and female on purpose for his purposes. Now, we can speak that truth in love. We, we're, I think we're past the days of being angry about this issue because it is, it is sad to us to see the confusion out there. So we have to be able to navigate the culture that sees this very differently with, with new gender identities seemingly every year that are added to the list. And so it's bewildering what's happening out there. We see their confusion but the word of God calls us back to clarity here in the household of God. We don't join in that confusion. So obviously where you might work, you're going to have to navigate this with grace and wisdom and kindness while holding to the truth of what is real. And God's telling you in his word what is real. There is male and female created in the image of God. Again, scriptures affirm that in the home, there are certain, certain uh, roles for the husband. He's to, he's to love his wife as Christ loved the church, and the wife is a supportive partner there. We see that same servant, male loving leadership in the church. So, so the biblical pattern is this, we, we, and we affirm it, that there's equality in men and women in their worth and in their gifting, while at the same time understanding that men and women are different by design for certain roles within the church. So let's affirm it again. Women are equals. And they are gifted to serve 
though we might operate differently at times. And women did serve in the Bible. So I love one of the examples is in Acts chapter 18, some of Paul's primary church planning partners were a couple named Aquila and Priscilla. And there was an occasion when they took Apollos, they took mighty Apollos aside, and the scripture says they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. So a husband-wife team helping to, uh, to increase the knowledge of Apollos. It reminded me of a young missionary woman that I knew years ago serving in South Asia. She was in her 20s. She had already been to seminary, so she knew the word quite well, had been equipped well here. And she went to serve in India in a, in a certain city there. And I was able to accompany her one day when she went to the home of an Indian pastor and that pastor's wife. And, and the arrangement was this. This young pastor learned that this young woman had, had gone to seminary and he lacked a lot of theological training. So he wanted some of this knowledge that she gained. He also wanted some of the, the missiology that the IMB had given, had given to this young lady. So he was very teachable. And so what did this young missionary woman do? She would go to his home with his wife there and they would just look at the scriptures together. She wasn't taking authority over him. She never would preach in his church. She wasn't seeking to be the pastor of that church, but she was just passing on things she had learned to this brother in Christ so that he was better equipped as he led the church in a scriptural way. Now, that was a beautiful picture of her serving with humility, but passing along the gifts God had given to her. So having different gender roles does not indicate inferiority. The Danvers statement on biblical manhood and womanhood affirms this. It says, in the church, redemption in Christ gives men and women an equal share in the blessings of salvation. Nevertheless, some governing and teaching roles within the church are restricted to men. Another analogy of how this can work where we have differing roles and yet still be equal is probably a lot of that football we watched over this Thanksgiving weekend. So if you weren't in a food coma, probably a football game you might have been watching. And you see there, everybody on the field is important, aren't they? 11, 11 guys on offense, 11 guys on defense. And you're just watching that and you say, well, who's most important? And you can make an argument for certain positions, but really everybody has to do their part or it just doesn't work well. Somebody might say, well, isn't the quarterback most important because he calls the play? Well, actually, we would understand, actually, there's a coach on the sideline or in a skybox. He's calling the play. And the quarterback's just doing what he's told. He's, he's playing the role that he's been given. And he might not even be the most gifted athlete on the field. Oftentimes, the quarterback, he's got the task of calling and starting the play. But his task, if he has a superstar running back or a superstar wide receiver, he's not the most gifted. I've got to get the ball into their hands so that they can run, so that we can make progress. And I think likewise in the life of the church. We don't think that men are more gifted. They're not superstars around here. Certainly those in the role of pastor, our, our team of pastors, we don't think we're better than anybody here. But we have roles to play, and the scripture kind of shows us how we are to function as a church. But again, we take this on and we understand this is not maybe a typical teaching that we hear out in the culture. But again, this applies to the church. This applies to the home. We feel pressure, don't we, in our life to just really conform to the idea that gender doesn't matter at all. That male and female are absolutely interchangeable. That should not matter to us. But listen, many churches have actually caved on this issue. And so they will have women preachers. They'll have women pastors. And you look at the text here. I don't, I don't know how they can do that. And so it really becomes dangerous. Now, I understand, and I, and I have some of the same impulse at times. You think, well, why does it matter? Like, I mean, what, what harm is being done if a woman loves God and she wants to preach in church and she wants to be a pastor of a church? But, but we have to come back and say, listen, I can't let my feelings dictate Scripture. 
I, I can't let how I feel about it or what seems reasonable to me take priority over what God has revealed. And so it becomes a very dangerous thing when somebody comes to a passage like this and goes, yeah, but I feel called to do this anyway. You, you really then lose any kind of biblical grounding on any issue. If you could look at the text of Scripture like here and in 1 Timothy and go, yeah, but I'm not going to follow that, you could do that with any other moral hot-button issue of the day. And that's what we so frequently see. In churches that cave on this point, they will cave on point after point after point when the Scripture is no longer your authority for how you do church. So worship then should be edifying. Worship should be ordered. And then this, worship should be scriptural. And that takes us to verse 36. Or was it from you that the word of God came? Or are you the only ones that has reached? If anyone thinks that he's a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I'm writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. So my brothers earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues. But all things should be done decently and in order. I love that question. He asked the Corinthians, did the word of God come from you, Corinthians? Or did the word of God come to you? And of course, it came to them. They're not over the Bible. They're not over the scriptures as they were coming together. They were under the scriptures. They need to follow the scriptures. Notice here he says, these things he's been talking about in order and worship and edification and all that. These are commands of the Lord. They must be followed. And so we think about that for all of worship. The context here of 1 Corinthians 14 is bringing back order to disordered worship there. That's the main takeaway for us today. But we have the entire Bible, aren't you glad, to inform how we worship. You have the entirety of the Old Testament that informs how we worship. The entirety of the New Testament. And so let's just, as we, as we get ready to go, let's just consider how does the scripture tell us to worship? Well, we are to worship from sincere, engaged hearts, not mere ritual. Remember, Jesus said we are to worship in spirit and in truth. Remember, Jesus warned a church in the early chapters of Revelation that their, the worshipers are not to be lukewarm. Another church, he says, you've left your first love. Our worship should never be passionless worship. It should be from sincere, engaged hearts. Our worship should be from surrendered hearts. The scripture says to obey is better than sacrifice. We're to worship from cheerful hearts. The scripture says God loves a cheerful giver. And even in the old covenant, when they brought their animals to sacrifice, they couldn't bring the diseased animals to God. They had to bring their very best. They were to come as cheerful givers. We are to worship also with reconciled relationships. Remember Jesus taught his disciples, if you go to worship and you remember somebody has something against you, what did he say to do? Leave your offering, go make things right with that person. Then you come back and worship. We are to worship from reconciled relationships. In fact, hasn't that been the context of all of 1 Corinthians? All the dysfunction, all the division, Paul says, you got to get that right. And when you come to worship, you need to be blessing each other. How else should we worship? What does the scripture say? We should worship, worship with awe and with joy. Let's not forget who we're worshiping. Even today, as we technically look at certain elements of worship, let's not forget who we're talking about. We're worshiping the one that Moses worshiped. Remember Moses at the burning bush? Take off your sandals. The place where you're standing is holy ground. We're worshiping the same God that Moses worshiped. We're worshiping the same God that Isaiah worshiped. Remember that, that time in the temple? The angels are calling out, holy, holy, holy. We're worshiping the same God that Isaiah worshiped. We are called to awe in our worship. Oh, and much joy. Because we're worshiping the God who sent his son to rescue us from our sins. Jesus who came 
who died on a cross for us, shedding his blood to atone for all of our sinfulness and raised him from the dead, why not worship with joy and all a God so loving as that? And the book of Psalms tells us how to worship, tells us there are times when we should be still and know that he is God. There's time for quiet worship. Oh, but there's time for loud worship. We're told we're to worship him with loud instruments as well. So times of being contemplative and times when we're celebrating, God is worthy of all that worship. Well, it was in the 1990s, late 1990s, early 2000s, when a song became popular for a season talking about worship, a song called The Heart of Worship. And I read where the, the writer of this song was in a church where they were really gotten caught up in the production of their worship music. And he became convicted about that. We need to get back to the heart of worship and wanted to strip that back down to just focusing on God. And maybe these words will sound familiar as I read them, not sing them to you. So, so don't worry. But the words go like this. When the music fades, all is stripped away and I simply come longing just to bring something that's of worth, worth that will bless your heart. I'll bring you more than a song, for a song in itself is not what you have required. You search much deeper within through the way things appear. You're looking into my heart. I'm coming back to the heart of worship, and it's all about you. It's all about you, Jesus. I'm sorry, Lord, for the thing I've made it when it's all about you. It's all about you, Jesus. And then he said, king of endless worth, no one could express how much you deserve Though I'm weak and poor, all I have is yours, every single breath. Let's pray together. Lord, as we take to heart this text, we are reminded that we are a part of your family. Because of your grace extended to us at the cross and in the resurrection, by the working of your spirit, Lord, we came to believe in you. And you gave us this gift to become your children and so, Lord, we do want to worship you in a way that's worthy of you. You are the great one. You're awesome. And so, Lord, keep us from, from just dead rituals. But, Lord, also you remind us to, to not just follow our emotions only, but, God, may your word inform how we approach you. And, Lord, may your word just cause us to delight in you over and over again in the gospel, in this good news. Lord, I do pray for friends that you've brought here, that, Lord, they, they need to be saved. They've known about you but they haven't known you. They haven't followed you. They're missing out on the joy that you have for them. God, would you do a fresh work in each of us, convicting us of sin, causing sorrow for sin, and Lord, calling us to repentance and restoration and joy in you. God, continue your work in us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.